Okay. Well, hey, let's uh, let's go to First Timothy, shall we? Turn over to the book of First Timothy. And uh, if you're just joining us, welcome. Uh, we are in a verse by verse study of the book of First Timothy. And good news, you haven't missed a whole lot. We're uh, three parts into it now. And uh, this is a great book. There's a couple of reasons why I wanted to take us to First Timothy in this fall semester. Uh, one is this is a book that really paints a picture for us of what spiritual health ought to look like. Uh, perhaps this last year, none of us in our generation have thought more about health and medical things and, and how to handle various afflictions with the, uh, the COVID-19 outbreak and all of that. So, you know, we're all proficient Googlers when it comes to medical things now. And, and uh, even in talking, as you know, with, with other believers, not everybody agrees on, you know, what's right and what's wrong, or at least what's preferable versus not so preferable. And, um, and so when we, when we come to the book of First Timothy, we come not with physical health so much on our mind, but asking the question, what does spiritual health look like? And what are the things that healthy churches do? And, and, and what do churches who would desire to grow in spiritual health, what do those pursuits look like? And you'll remember that Paul is writing this letter to his friend Timothy, whom he has left in the town of Ephesus. Paul spent many years there establishing the church, building the church up. And before he left, he warned the Ephesian elders uh, that um, there would be false teachers that would arise even from amongst their midst, in, in, from, from their group. And, uh, and just as Paul had predicted, that happened a few years later with false teachers that had arisen probably within the own church's leadership structure. And so Paul picks up his pen and he writes to Timothy on, you know, how do you handle this? And so it's not just, hey, you know, here's 10 steps for a healthy church. It's, it's in the middle of a difficulty Paul is saying, here are, here are the ways that you need to handle a situation like that, and, and here are the marks of a healthy church so that you can grow and mature. Um, so that, that's one reason I think we, we want to do that is, is I don't think we, we don't want to be an anemic church, right? We, we don't want to be a, a feeble, sickly, dying, but we want to be healthy, strong, growing, effective for the gospel, uh, loving each other, building each other up, growing to look more like Christ, effective in our community, right? That's what we want to be. And, and that's not just going to happen by accident. That's going to happen when we study the Scripture with a view toward uh, this this thought, how do we do that? How do we grow? Uh, th- another reason I mentioned that we're, I wanted to study First Timothy is that First um, Timothy talks about the roles of men and women both in the church and in the home. And uh, even amongst those of us that are complementarians, right, if you're okay with that, that term, complementarian is the biblical view that God made men and women equal and yet having different roles. And uh, even in the evangelical church that would have historically affirmed those things, that those roles, that complementarian biblical viewpoint is being distorted, uh, it's being challenged, it's being altered, uh, all, all in the name of progress. And so uh, if you haven't faced this yet, you certainly will. Any of you guys on social media, blogs, and favorite podcasts and whatnot, you know this is a favorite topic. So, so we want to really drill down and ask the question, what are the roles that God intends for men and women? And are, are there things that we've missed, things that we need to improve? 
um, and, and how do we respond to a culture that is challenging those things in the wake of mainly critical theory is challenging that as well as um, some of the things being talked about in terms of how we counsel and deal with abuse, which is a very serious issue. Um, but for those two reasons, I thought we would go to First Timothy. So let me start the PowerPoint here, and then I will share it with you because I'm in a sharing mood this morning. So here we go. Okay. How are we doing there? Hey, great. So we're calling this Instructions for a Healthy Church, right? A study of 1 Timothy. And uh, just by way of review, uh, let's look back at the last few verses that we looked at. We made it about halfway, three-quarters of the way through 1 Timothy chapter 1 last time. So you want to just look back there. The first thing that he's going to address with 1 Timothy right out of the gate, we we talked about this, right? Some of the other letters, you know, it's, hey, you know, greet so-and-so, and how's it going, and I've been praying for you. Not this letter. Paul gets right down to business and says, Timothy, you need to deal with these false teachers. This is, this is you know, uh, a, a all-hands-on-deck sort of situation. Chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And we talked a little bit about the background. Who are these teachers? We'll talk, we're going to talk about, in fact, we're going to meet two of them today. You want to meet two of the false teachers? We're going to meet them. Paul talks about them at the very end of the chapter. But, but, but the point here is not necessarily to, to try to figure out what exactly was the heresy and what was the false teaching. The, 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 the point here is to remember how does Paul deal with false teaching. We saw this in Colossians and we see it here. He's going to call out the false teaching and call out the false teachers, but the main way he's going to do that is by reminding us what is true biblical doctrine and who is the true Son of God, Jesus, so that we might conclude why would we want to go anywhere else for our doctrine and for our teaching. And so he reminds us, this is one of the theme uh, passages of the letter here. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. The goal of our instruction is to get our theology right. Is that what he says? The goal of our instruction is to earn a lot of Awana points and awards. Yeah, I'm getting a thumbs up from Boyd up here. So, And that's good. We love Awana. We, do, we even do Awana. Uh, but, but look at this. Where does all of our instruction, all of our doctrine, all of our theology, all comes to one point, right? It, it serves one goal. And what is it according to verse 5? It serves love. And we talked about last time, the two great commandments, right? Love for God, love for neighbor. If your orthodoxy, if my orthodoxy doesn't make us greater lovers of God and lovers of neighbor, then we're misusing doctrine. In fact, it's it's a bit sad because often uh, when you look to those that love theology and deep theology and the circles that we like to run in, the blogs and books we read, often there's there's an arrogance about doctrine and, and a, a, a looking down the theological nose upon other people who may not have it quite as right as we do or as we think we do. And that that's the opposite of love, isn't it? So, so yes, we strive for orthodoxy. Yes, we, we take God's word seriously. Yes, sound doctrine is critical. We don't, we don't say that that's not important. But all to serve the goal of love of God and love of neighbor. 
and that if our doctrine is right but our practice is wrong, then that's the time to pull the car over and say, what's going on? Because that's, see, right doctrine produces godly living, right? That's what it does. So if right doctrine is producing ungodly living, then something has happened in the translation process, and we need to figure out what that is very, very quickly. Okay, so the goal, verse 5 of our instruction, is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, right? And he talks about how uh, that plays out. So we want to deal with false teachers and those who support it. Uh, bringing us back to this idea that the goal of our instruction is love. Notice, secondly, as Paul is talking about false teachers and he's talking about those who who are out of line with Scripture, what does he say? He talks about the role of the law in verses 8 to 11, that the, the law, the instructions of God are given to bring conviction and condemnation on sinners like you and me. And that And that reminder that Paul throws out, probably because the false teachers had misunderstood the role of the law of God, but in talking about the purpose of the law leading sinners to conviction and to repentance, it kind of stirs up Paul's own testimony. And so he says in verses 12 through 17, he spends a few minutes reminding us about his own spiritual past. Uh, Look with me briefly at verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, because it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Uh, we, we talked about that, just the, the power of God to change any and every life, even the chief of sinners. And we know Paul had a particularly uh, violent past in terms of his persecuting of the church. Now, I want you to think about this. What's the connection between talking about God's own mercy to himself as a blasphemer and correcting the false teachers in the church? What's the connection there? Okay, we should do the same. Uh, why would that be a wise thing to do? I agree with you. Okay, yeah. Do you think we're going to correct people who need theological correction? Do you think that we're going to correct them differently if on our own hearts we're reminding ourselves of how much we needed God's mercy in our life. Are we going to do that differently? And so maybe that's the connection Paul's trying to draw. We can't be for sure. But I think we should go to other people in need of mercy as those who come because we've received that mercy, right? We go to fellow sinners uh, both needing mercy. And I think that changes the tone of how we correct. I think that changes the words that we use. I think that changes our goal. Our goal is not to shape them into, you know, whip them into shape kind of thing. Our, our goal is for them to experience the same mercy and grace that God has shown us. 
So, so let's, let's, um, when God calls us to bring correction to people that genuinely need correction, let, let's fill our hearts with our own need for mercy and the reminder of how God has been kind to show us mercy. And that will help us to have the right framework, I think, as we come. Okay? So let's, uh, let's pick it up in verse 18. And uh, let's look at this next session. Verse, verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these, now Paul's going to name names here. Watch this. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom whom I have handed over to Satan. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Okay, so so what's the deal here? Paul, in in this day and age where there was a transition and and spiritual gifts, what we call the charismatic spiritual gifts, uh, were in operation, Paul alludes to a prophecy that was given about Timothy's ministry. And so Paul here affirms what he does in 2 Timothy as well, and that is he, he calls Timothy to, to live his calling, to be faithful in the work that God has put in front of him, and, uh, and to, as it says here, to fight the good fight of faith. Now, I want, I want you to just, just think with me for a minute, okay? Not, not thinking about Christianity so much. Um, what are some arenas of life where you're called to fight? Just think with me on this. Some arenas of life where we have to fight. Politics. Politics, okay. Yeah, yeah, the political fighting, okay. What else? Yeah, maybe your own defense of any situation. You're being attacked for something you believe or something like that, okay. All right. Parents protecting their children. Yeah, great. Okay, fighting against our own sinful nature. I, I, I guess I, you guys are, are like thinking much more deeper than me, and, and that there's probably a message in that. That's good. I'm thinking, you know, if I walk into a boxing ring, and I'm like, hey man, boom, you know, I mean, just right. You, you, you walk in prepared to fight, and if you don't fight, what happens? You get your clock cleaned, right? You you, you get knocked out. Um, and so so, ha- so so let me ask you this: When you wake up in the morning and you think about living for Jesus that day, do you think of it like walking into a boxing ring? Do you think of going into life with your guard up, needing to fight? Not, not by, by the way, not because you're going to go punch, you know, all the unbelievers or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But, but in terms of fighting to fulfill the ministry God has called you to fulfill. That's the context of what Paul's talking about here, right? Paul, Timothy, fulfill your ministry, right? Fight the good fight of faith. Do what you were called to do. And I wonder, because I don't often think of it like that, but if you think of it, the Bible describes the Christian life like that, doesn't it? It's a fight. It's a race. It's a war. It's a battle. 
it's thing it's a, it's a gymnasium you have to work in right and I, I did this because I love you guys. I looked all over the Bible. I couldn't find anywhere in the Bible where it talks about the Christian life being a vacation or a holiday. These violent, sweaty, aggressive terms used. And, and, and here's the point. Just like walking into a boxing ring and think you're, you know, you, you, mis, you mistook the boxing ring for, you know, the, the cruise boat that you're going to go on, right? And boom, right? Just like that's true, I think we need this admonition. We, we need the admonition to fulfill our ministry by fighting the good fight of faith. And it is a fight. It's not a rest. It's not a holiday. And we need to think about the... And I'm not talking about, you know, like, you know, Pastor Terry, you know, he's called as a pastor. Not, not like that. Your calling. Your ministry. Maybe that's a ministry as a mom or a dad or a grandparent. Maybe it's a ministry as a neighbor. You know, you have neighbors that need Jesus. Maybe it's you're an Awana leader. Maybe it's you lead a home group. Maybe it's, uh, maybe at your workplace you have people that need Christ. That's your ministry. That's your calling. You say, how do I know my calling? You look around you for people that need Jesus. And that's your calling. So, And we need to look at that as a fight, meaning I need to be intentional in that. I need to battle that. I need to, to, to do that. Um, and if we're not intentional, I think as the language implies here, uh, we're not going to keep the faith. Right now, now you guys have have mentioned it on another level, and that is, I think Grant mentioned this. You know, the, the fight against indwelling sin. The Bible also talks about the Christian life as a fight, not for our ministry, which I think is what Paul's talking about here, but a fight for indwelling sin. We're fighting indwelling sin, and that's certainly another fight we need to be aware of as well. Um, but it's a fight, right? It, it's not a rest. It's not a vacation, and we need to to do that. We, we didn't have some prophecy. Uh, given over us like like Paul did with Timothy here, but we know that we all have a ministry and we all have a calling to fulfill. And we, and we need to fight to do that. And, and, and just talk to me here. Is ministry hard? Is ministry hard? Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. We're not picking a fight. The fight's already on, right? Um, now, now notice this. Now, now Paul's going to illustrate it with a ministry opportunity if we can call it that, that Timothy had before him. And, and th- this is hard, guys. Uh, our church has walked through this before, and um, th- this is the level of love for neighbor and love for ministry that we have to do. Okay, So he says, Keep the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So he's talking now about... Um, so on your, on your notes there, Christianity is war, believers are soldiers. You know, we talked about that, some other reference that we give there. Um, look at this. Some have rejected, uh, suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. They, they've rejected the faith. They, they've departed from the Christian gospel. And now he's going to call out two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Who are those guys? We, we don't know for sure. Those are probably elders in the church of Ephesus who have departed from sound doctrine and are now teaching the false doctrine that Paul has previously mentioned. And um, 
this is this is some serious stuff here. What do you do when your leaders in a local church uh, corrupt themselves in doctrine or perhaps in practice? Listen to what he says here. Um, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, now, if you just read that out of context, you go, man, that doesn't sound very loving. I thought we were Christians. I thought we opposed Satan. Why, why would we hand people over to Satan? Um, and I've, I've mentioned it on, on the notes there. I take this to be what we call a, a reference to so-called um, corrective discipleship. Sometimes it's called church discipline. You say, what's that all about? It's when a community of believers come around somebody who's living in sin and they refuse to turn away from that behavior that they're involved in. And and it might might be, you know, um, extortion. It might be adultery. It might be uh, spreading false doctrine. And uh, the reference to Satan here, if I've got the cross-reference there uh, in 1 Corinthians. Um, so Hymenaeus and Alexander are probably leaders in the church at Ephesus who have rejected the faith, as Paul mentions. They've, they've shipwrecked their faith, one of Paul's favorite ways of describing um, that. And, and hand it over to Satan. I think if, if, we, if we look at how Paul uses that same language in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we, we get a little more detail. If you want to turn over there, you're welcome to, or you can just listen. Um, similar situation going on in 1 Corinthians 5, not with necessarily a leader of the church at Corinth, but a situation where the leadership was not taking action in regard to gross sin that was being tolerated in the assembly. And so uh, we read a little bit about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. There was some sort of uh, immorality going on. And um, so Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians saying in verse 5, he says, I've, I have uh, delivered such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You say, so what does it mean to hand somebody over to Satan, a professing believer who's living in sin, who is not repenting of that doctrine or sin or whatever it is? What does it mean? That sounds very unloving. That sounds very unchristian. Well, let me ask you a question. Who is the God of this world? That's Satan, okay? Um, when, when we come together in, in, a, in the community of faith, the, the assembly, right? We, we come together in a local church and there's a membership there. That is uh, a local representation of the body of Christ. That's what we are, right? We're believers that come together to represent Christ in the world. We, we worship, we build each other up, and then we scatter to take the gospel to the nations. So in church discipline, and you may be familiar with this from, from Matthew 18 and other passages, when, when somebody is living in sin in the membership, uh, the first thing is you, you, know, you go and you talk to them, right? I, I love you, man. What's going on? You know, and, and you, know, you need to change that. That doesn't honor God, and you need to repent. You need to confess your sin and get right with God and appropriate people. And then uh, Matthew 18, where Jesus prescribes this, if they don't listen, then you bring a couple other people along with you. You know, to, to stress the seriousness of what's going on, to affirm the validity, right? Sometimes we can be wrong. So you bring a couple of people along, and now those two or three people talking to this brother or sister say, yeah, you're, you're really, um, what you're doing is ungodly, and, and here's how we know that from Scripture, and you need to turn away from it. You need to seek God's grace and forgiveness. 
And if they don't listen even to that small group of people, the next level, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, is you tell it to the church. You say, man, that you like go public with it? No, not public, just within the church family. So that now the whole of God's people in that church can go after that person. You know, if, if, if we were all up at the YMCA up here, and um, I know they have lifeguards and stuff like that, but let's say there were no lifeguards, and there's some kid drowning in the pool, we'd all jump in and try to help, wouldn't we? We wouldn't sit there going, oh, well, hope it turns out okay. We'd all jump in the pool to try to rescue that person who's drowning. And that's what corrective discipleship is. That's what church discipline is. When we get to the point we have to tell the church what's going on, it's not to shame the person, it's not to make them feel bad, it's not to gossip, it's because the whole church needs to jump in the pool and try to save this person. It's a whole church rescue operation. And then if we get to that last step of church discipline that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, 17, um, what, what the Bible says to do, what Jesus says to do, is if they refuse to listen to the whole church, then you treat them as an unbeliever. Uh, again, and, that, and that's, not, that's not like, oh, you know, horrible person, I never want to talk to you again. What it is is it's saying, okay, this person is professing Christ, but they're not living like a Christian. So now what we do is we appeal to them for evangelism. We appeal to them as someone in need of the gospel. And at that point, of course, uh, they're removed from membership because you know, they're, they're, they're showing themselves to not truly be a believer. So in this sense, if we're removing somebody from the fellowship of the local church, it's like we're putting them back in the world. Does that make sense? We're taking them from the church community and we're putting them back in the world. And that's what Paul intends, I believe, when he says, hand them over to Satan. That person is no longer in the protective community of the local church. And notice, again, it's not because Paul says, you know, I hope you have a horrible life. No, in fact, Paul clarifies in 1 Corinthians 5 that this happens, that we, we remove people from membership. We, we hand them over to Satan in the sense of, of putting them out of the church into the world. Why? Paul says here, so that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is at that point, experiencing the world without the protection and community of the local church becomes God's instrument to lead them to true salvation. That's the logic here. Okay, So maybe you've never been in a church where church discipline or corrective discipleship, as we call it, has been practiced. Uh, it's, it, it, if you've never heard of it before, it, I know it sounds kind of weird, but uh, it, it's actually one of the most loving things that God calls a church community to do when it's necessary to do. So coming back to uh, 1 Timothy with Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, what he's talking about there is probably removing them from the membership of the church so that the weight of a broken world might press in on them without the... The, the fellowship of the church community, that they might come to true salvation. Okay. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and we can talk about um, uh, church discipline more, but I, I think that's what Paul means there when he says uh, to hand them over to Satan. And notice, it's so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. What's the opposite of blaspheming? Affirming Jesus as Lord and Savior, right? Blaspheming is I'm rejecting him, I'm denying him, I'm... I'm Right, so so the opposite of that is to affirm Christ, to affirm that that He's the Son of God and, and and His gospel and whatnot. So I think His goal here is 
it is punitive in one sense, but but it really is redemptive in what he's trying to do here to, to bring these these uh, leaders to salvation. While still, you say, why, why do they have to leave the membership of the church? Because they are muddying the water of sound doctrine in the local church. Their sin tolerated in the body of Christ corrupts the whole body. So that, that's why the removal from membership happens. Okay, so so Paul's saying here, make a commitment to keep the faith by fighting for the faith, the battle in our hearts, the battle out there. And guess what? Also, the battle that that wages in the local church when we have to um, you remember, remember, we used to call it tough love, right? Tough love. Um, and that's what this is, is an illustration of tough love in the church when when we have to correct somebody uh, like Hymenaeus and Alexander who are spreading false doctrine. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's in that's in First Corinthians also. So what what Katie's talking about is Paul gives instructions to the Corinthians when when you have a person who's professing Christ, and and this process has happened, <clears throat> Paul says don't even eat with such a one, right? Don't associate with them. Don't eat with such a one. And I think what he means, and you guys push back, I I, I don't think he means don't ever talk to them, don't evangelize them, don't share Jesus with them. I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means is don't continue relating to them as if they're real Christians. Don't have them over and have, you know, a Christian fellowship, you know, don't hang out with them. Hey, how's it going? You know, yes, meet with them for the purpose of sharing the gospel, but but don't associate with them as if they were part of uh, uh, the Christian community. Yeah, and you guys tell me if you have a different opinion on that. That's the way I take those verses. But uh, anyway... Good, good question there. Okay, so now flip the flip the page and look at chapter two, verse one. Okay, so now that he's 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 uh, dealt with the emergency, right? The house is burning down, and Paul has given instructions to Timothy: deal with the false teachers um, before things spread. And then he kind of gets back to some other manners. So chapter two, verse one. First of all, then. I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Okay, so notice the repetition there. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, those are all you know, overlapping words. Look at the last one. Thanksgivings. Be made on behalf of all men for, what's the next word? Kings. And all those in authority. Okay, you're reading the same Bible I'm reading. That's good. That's good. What does that mean? No one's excluded. What's that? You have to be thankful for your your president. You mean even if it's not the guy that... I voted for, right? In the last 10 years, everybody's unhappy, right? Someone's unhappy if we take the last 10 years. Why is this first? Yeah, yeah, you're thinking... See, we, we read this with American eyes, don't we? You know, you know, my guy didn't get elected, you know, whoever that guy is, right? Um, who's Paul talking to? Church at Ephesus, Timothy. Where are they located? The Roman Empire. How was their governance? It was like a democracy. Like you know, you walked into the voting booth and you voted out Nero if you didn't like him, right? Is that how it went? 
No, this this is a dictatorship. <laughs> this this is if you know anything about the history of the Roman Empire, right? That this is this is go in and kill people and break things and take their land. Is how it worked, right? And what does Paul say to Christians if you want to be a healthy church? Pray for them. Actually, he says pray, 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 and be thankful. And, and, and I don't think Paul means when he says that, I don't think he's saying, well, everything Nero does is great. Everything the Caesar does is great. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there are things to be thankful for about our leadership, even if we deem that leadership particularly corrupt. And notice, what does he say should be the content of our prayers? That we would live what? A tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I don't know what you think about when you think about what a government should be. Pastor Terry talked about it in Romans 13 a couple of months ago. Upholding righteousness, punishing evildoers, right? But, but, but think, look at this. What, what's he saying? What should we pray for? Think of all the things, think of all the ideas in our country about government and what government should be and what government should do and who's right and who's wrong. Look at how Paul sums it up. We need to pray that we would have a tranquil and quiet life. That's what we're praying for for our government leaders, right? That they would govern in a way that citizens would enjoy a tranquil and quiet life of doing whatever they want to do. What's the qualifier? A tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. Sounds like Romans 13, doesn't it? We want rulers that will lead and govern in righteousness and godliness. And Paul says, well, we we can sit around and mope about that all day, or we can actually do something about it by praying for them, praying for our leaders, praying uh, for our president, for our representatives, for our local leaders. A tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Look at this. This is good and acceptable to God, okay? Now, now let me me just challenge you here. Um, How many know who the president of the United States is? How many know who the vice president of the United States is? How many know your two senators that represent the state of Texas? Really? Okay. Uh, uh, and, and, and jump in here because we're going we're to do this little exercise right now. Because right? if we're going to do this, we have to know who we're praying for. Okay? So you did, so you, you did okay at the, at the presidential level. Let's work on the senatorial level here. Okay? So who are our uh, 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 senators? What's that? John Cruz and, or, or um, what did I say? I switched them, didn't I? Ted Cruz and who? John Cornyn. Okay. And then moving to now our, our state. Who's our governor? Okay. And who's our state senator? Brian Birdwell. You should know that. He's got a great testimony. Read his book called Refined by Fire, how he was burned over 60% of his body in the 9-11 attack to, pen, to the Pentagon. You guys know his story? Oh, read, read the book. It's, uh, did you, you were just telling me you read that, right? The, um, so Birdwell, and then uh, who's our, um, um, what's the other one, the House representative? Yes. Fluger. Fluger, okay. All right. 
And who's our mayor? Just changed. Jarrett. Okay. All right. So um, I because um, things change, I have a page in my prayer journal with all those people's names on them. Because somewhere in the past, I was convicted by a verse like this that I needed to be doing that. And like you, sometimes those names aren't right on the tip of my tongue, right? So um, so get your prayer journal out. I do it in pencil. You know why you have to do this in pencil? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So you can rip the page out if you do pen, but you know, pencil works a lot better. Then you just erase it, you know, and um, do that. And pray and petition that, that these folks would lead us to a tranquil and quiet life and all godliness and dignity, that they would, they would lead with righteousness, that they would love Christ. And I was talking to Lisa about this, you know, reading through Timothy, and, uh, and, and she voiced, I think, what we all think. And sometimes we, we read that, and, and based on, again, in the last 10 years, everybody's unhappy, right? So wherever you've been unhappy... Yeah. Is that really going to make a difference? Look at the next verse. Verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires... What? Does that include that party that I don't care much for? That leader I don't care much for? That... Government official, I don't care, right? Does that does that include that, or is Paul? Is there a footnote that says no, not that guy? Yeah, guys, do you see this? God desires the salvation of these folks who lead us, and it's our job to pray that He might work in their life. This is this is serious business of Christians to pray for our leaders. Uh, it's good and acceptable. On your notes there, this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, since He desires all men to be saved. That God's mercy, God's compassion, God's grace extend to even that leader, whoever it is, you fill in the blank, that you can't stand. And, and I, I want to confess something to you. It's very hard to pray for somebody for their salvation if you're angry and frustrated and bitter toward them. Isn't it? So you know what that means? That means I have to go, go back to fight the fight, right? That the, the, the boxing ring in my own soul. I've got to win that battle in my heart if I'm going to pray the right way for leaders. And I think, guys, if we win that battle in our heart and we're praying for our leaders, that's going to change the tone, the words, the perspective that we have. Not not at all saying if something is horribly wrong by God's standard, we say that's no big deal. Not at all. But in the manner in which we go about things and, and the way that we let our faith take the lead, our testimony take the lead in terms of how we think about political things. Um, 
I'm not trying to step on your toes. I think God's trying to step on our toes right now a little bit. Because that's, that's a hard thing to do. Um, praying for somebody by name that you struggle with is a great way to grow in godliness. And it's a great way to truly do something righteous for that person that probably needs Jesus. So this is good and acceptable. God, you know what that means? God is honored when we do this. God is pleased when we do this. And that leads right into these wonderful verses. And note, you know, and again, we mentioned Awana earlier, right? You know, uh, yeah, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, man, the man Christ Jesus. That's a good Awana verse, right? Did you know Paul gave that in the context of praying for unholy, unrighteous, wicked, horrible dictators in the Roman Empire? <laughs> That's the context. And yes, it's a great theological verse, and, and there's wonderful things we can glean there. But I think it's very helpful uh, to remember the context there, right? I'm calling this the exclusivity and universality of the gospel. God desires all men to be saved. That's the universality of the gospel. God intends, God desires all men to be saved. I know, I know what you're thinking. Well, but what about election and what about... Uh, uh, the fact that people reject him. I get it, okay? I get it. But th- this expresses God's desire for humanity, that people would be saved. And, and I think we, we need to remember that. This is a great verse to take people to who need Christ, that God desires for them to join his family. And that just like the chief of sinners that we read about in the last chapter, that there is no person who's done something or, or has participated in something so horrendous that they're outside of the circle of the grace that God offers. So, you know what that means? We don't give up praying for people that need Christ. Right? We continue to pray for them. We continue to know God's heart toward them. And we pray that he might be gracious to bring them to himself. But that's the universality, right? God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then we get what we call the exclusivity of the gospel. Just because uh, God, uh, you know, that, that's the vision, right? That, that, that people have to respond to God's offer of salvation, don't they? Look at this. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. What's the next word? The man. Why does he say that? There's one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ. Why don't you just say Jesus? Okay. High priest, Pam, what were you going to say? He was man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came in the flesh, high priest. Yeah, so you, you got to put your, your Old Testament thinking cap on here for a minute and go back and think about the mediator, right? Who, who was it that, that came standing between God and the congregation of Israel? It was the high priest, right? It, it was a group of men. And uh, those priests acted as intercessors, as mediators, um, and they would go to God on behalf of the people. They would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. They were the mediators, right? And and so we say, well, why didn't why didn't Jesus just come 
as the Son of God and, and do the work of redemption and just... Well, he had to take on a human nature. And one of the reasons that, God, that Jesus had to take on a human nature was to become our mediator. This is one of the big points of the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus has to be a man because he comes as the high priest, and the high priest is a, is a man. So when we talk about it, and you know, um, you know, the weather outside is cooling a bit, and so that means Christmas is right around the corner. We're, we got incarnation season coming upon us, and we're going to sing hymns and songs about this. And, and remember that, that Christmas is really kind of important uh, for lots of reasons, but, but the main reason is we're celebrating Jesus, the Son of God, who's always been God, taking on a human nature and coming to earth in part so that he could be our mediator and our great high priest. So it's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What's a mediator, by the way? What's that all about? Right. Right. The agent of reconciliation, we might say. That's right. And so he comes. And notice there's one God and there's only one mediator. What's that? That's exclusivity. That, that's what the, what the Bible means when it says there is salvation in no one else. That's what the Bible means when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So you understand that when we talk about Christianity, that Jesus is the only way to God, we don't say that like, you know, hey, we think our club is best and the rest of you guys are wrong. We say that on the basis of verses like this. That there is salvation in no other name. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. And that, that, that should just, I mean, overwhelm us in terms of, you know what? We know that, right? Someone, someone shared that with us and, and so that we found the path of life. But then that should also just overwhelm us in the sense of our own, um, our own stewardship. Do you think, People are going to hear the gospel in the world. Now, that's our, that, that's that's what we've been entrusted with. If, if this is really an exclusive gospel and it's been trusted to us, then then that mission rests on our shoulders. And um, I think that goes back to what, what he's saying about fight the good fight of faith, right? That, that that we have this stewardship of the gospel, and therefore salvation is by is through Christ alone. Now, notice the last part of the verse. We'll quit here. Uh, who gave himself a ransom for many, or, or for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Uh, you know that word ransom. That word ransom means a payment that's made to buy someone out of their slavery. So ransom goes with the that word redemption, right? When we think of buying sinners back out of their slavery to sin. So Jesus comes not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life a ransom for many. Hebrews has a great way of putting this. When he talks about Jesus coming as the high priest, he doesn't come offering the blood of bulls and goats. What does he come offering? Himself. So he offers himself as that ransom, as that payment or sacrifice in order to redeem sinners. So Jesus is the exclusive way 
to be reconciled to God. And again, that just that just impresses on us the importance of our mission. If we're, if we're going to be a healthy church, guys, we, we need to be overwhelmed from a human standpoint that this rests on us. That this mission rests on us. Does God work in us? Absolutely. Does he have to energize our efforts? Yes, he does. But from, from, the, from the standpoint of human responsibility, the gospel's been entrusted to us, and healthy churches are those that recognize that God's heart for all men to be saved and the exclusivity, exclusivity of Jesus and that message so that we get out there and we do our part. Um, okay, we'll put a comment in your notes, and we'll come back and pick it up in uh, verse 7 next time. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, just the reminders today. Um, uh, to fight the good fight of faith, to be faithful to do that, to pray for our leaders, to pray for you to work in their life, to pray for their salvation, and that they would govern in a way that is godly and righteous, and that we would see that your heart really is for all the nations, for all men to be saved, and that comes through the exclusive work of your Son, and, and we've been entrusted with that great message. Uh, Father, make us faithful. Whatever our ministry is, whatever, whatever people you've put in our life that need Christ, to be faithful to do that. And we know that uh, as we look to you and as we rest in you, that you'll work through our efforts. Lord, make us faithful. Make us effective. Help us not to be a dim light in a dark world, but make us bright for your kingdom and for your gospel. In Christ's name, amen.